Um, We've been looking all semester long at Jesus in the Old Testament. And tonight, we continue in that series, and we've basically said all semester long that the Old Testament, actually the entirety of the Bible, really is about, is really one story about one hero. That is one story about the hero, Jesus. And so, it's sometimes weird if you're not familiar with your Bibles, or if you are familiar with them, perhaps, for somebody to say that the whole thing, even long before Jesus was even born, was really about Him. So what we have said all semester long, there are these themes, there are these types that point forward to the person and work of Jesus. And it's really no different tonight. I hope that we will be able to see that. And that in the end, your heart will do this. That you will marvel tonight at how God has provided for you Jesus. I think it's absolutely stunning and wonderful. I hope that you will pay attention because I think this is an absolutely fantastic text. Um, Let me say this. I don't know um, how many of you have ever heard me bewail and moan this, but you may have heard me say that uh, one of the worst times in anybody's existence is this thing that we called middle school. Now, um, I'm pretty sure, I, I, I can't back this up scripturally, but I'm pretty sure that hell is an eternal 6th, 7th, and 8th grade, just on loop forever. Middle school is this time, right, where you become suddenly aware that other people might be looking at you. And it's this gloriously painful time of trying to learn how to do life, perhaps freshly and keenly aware of the opposite gender. Do you remember that? Every move felt like it was a test. And everybody was watching. And this creates this incredible sense of awkwardness along the way. See, I can remember this newfound sense uh, myself that especially um, that other girls uh, might be looking at me. You see, in this naive and innocent way, I can remember thinking for the first time about what I might wear. Here, just hang with me. I wanted to be accepted, so I made sure to dress fashionably. Now, I wanted to be noticed, right? And this drove me to make some of the most confusing (laughs) decisions about my wardrobe that I have ever made in my entire life. You can see my 7th grade um, annual picture if you want to. Here's my point. But that only meant, that only meant the desire to be seen was actually quite deep. For to be noticed by some seventh grade girl, and I could tell you her name, but I'm too scared she might listen to this text. I'm just playing. I don't even know who it is. Um, That it meant everything. Painful, y'all. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, hell is middle school for all eternity. I'm just convinced. Now, I don't know if you can relate to this. So, if you can, I, I feel your pain. We can cry on each other's, other's shoulders and we'll sort of go this together. They, they need a middle school like ad campaign. It's like middle school, it gets better, if you know what I'm talking about. So <laughs> it gets better. The reason I say this to you is, I'll be serious, is that because it has everything to do with what we just read. It has everything to do with what we just read. Here's how. We all want to be noticed. All of us do. Another pastor mentions that this text raises the question, how do we get noticed by God? In other words, what is it that gets God to look our way? 
It is a common belief in many Christian circles that we have to dress up metaphorically to get God to notice us. And some of us have tried that, leaving us feeling as awkward as Ryan in the seventh grade. What will get God's gaze? This is an important question. For how we answer it will actually drive, listen, I'm not underselling this, it will actually drive the entire course of your life. It will either bring about deep anxiety and insecurity, or it will bring about incredible peace and lasting joy. How do we answer that question? Well, this text has several important things, therefore, to say about the topic of worship. Now, worship can be spoken of in a narrower sense when you think about what might go on in like a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night church service. You sing songs, you might take the Lord's Supper, you have prayers, and so on and so forth. Like, that certainly is worship. But that's not primarily what I'm talking about tonight. Rather, in a much broader sense, worship refers to how one lives the entirety of our lives before God. And we're going to see that this text shows us three very important things about worship. They're on your bulletin there. I'll name them for you. First of all, worship. Everybody's doing it. Secondly, that worship cannot be divided. And that thirdly, that worship is always done as a response. It's always a response to something. Now, before we kind of jump in, will you hang with me for a second so I can give you a little bit of background to this text that we've read? Historically speaking, it's sometime in the middle of the 9th century B.C., okay? Elijah, who we heard read about in this text, is the prophet of God, and, and, the, and as the text says, the only one remaining around at the time. There had been a drought in the land of Israel for three years. God Himself had sent it. You can read about it in 1 Kings 17, the chapter before we read. And uh, as such, the land continues in that drought. Now... At the same time, there was a king in Israel, and his name was Ahab. Ahab was a very wicked king in the history of Israel and did not follow Yahweh as he should have. Now, I want you to do me a favor. If you look in your Bibles, or on, I don't know if it came through on the uh, bulletin. Can I, can I see Neil's bulletin really quickly? Um, yeah, okay, so it actually didn't, and that's all right. It's nobody's fault, but... In, in the Scriptures, you will see the, the word LORD in all caps. And when you see the word LORD in all caps, that's the personal name, like Ryan, like Mike, or like Kelly, for the LORD. That's the way the, 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 that's the, way the translators are translating the personal name of the LORD, being Yahweh. Okay? So that's who Israel should have worshipped. However, Ahab, in part of his uh, awful exploits began to bring in and promote the worship of a false god named Baal alongside the worship of Yahweh. In other words, I'll just put it simply, Ahab was a religious pluralist. So who was this Baal? Baal was a pagan fertility god. He was the one who was thought to bring rain, thus having crops to grow. There's a lot that can be said about it, and there's some things that are kind of wishy-washy that uh, commentators and histor historians name because the word Baal just means Lord and uh, there's different parts of the world at the time that were using it. But for our purposes tonight, you don't need to worry about any of that. You just need to hear Baal, false god, fertility god. And here's what God was saying in this drought. Listen to me. 
God was saying, Baal, if you are who you say you are, bring it. If you're the fertility God and you can bring rain, bring it. I'm creating a drought. Let's see what you can do. So you need to see that that is the background against which this text comes to us. So with that in mind, let's take a look underneath this first heading. Worship is something that everybody does. Now, one of the things that you see immediately in this context is that this culture was a very religious culture. You see, for example, that there were prophets, there were sacrifices, there were competing and alternate systems of faith, both with Yahwism and with Baalism. And as we view this, I think sometimes like thousands of years removed, we look back on it and go, man, those guys were some loons. Uh, they were quite primitive people. And I, I want you to hold off before you go there. I actually want to suggest something. Maybe they weren't so primitive in the first place. Maybe they were just actually more honest about the human heart and what it meant to be human. Here's what I mean. You see... Elijah knew, and all the people knew at that day, that what was at the core of the human heart is that it will worship something. And you see this by Elijah's command there in the text where he kind of barks out orders at the beginning of the story. He says, how long, in verse 21, will you go limping between these two different opinions? If, I must say the name, if Yahweh is God, follow Him. But if Baal, then follow Him. The point is that you were going to follow someone. It's sort of like that, uh, uh, you know, a cliche teen movie quote where the main character pressures something risque where he says, hey, everybody's doing it. It's exactly what's going on in this text. Everybody is going to worship. Everybody will worship something. So when you think about what worship is, you might go, okay, so what is it, Ryan? What is, it, what is the nature? What, what does it mean to actually worship something? Well, I don't know what comes to your mind, but this is what the Bible tells us about what worship is. Worship is giving worth to something that you find valuable. And it tends to be a religious word, but that's because from the biblical frame of reference, from right here, from this frame of reference... Every person finds something valuable. And because we do, we will always worship whatever that thing is, whatever we love, whatever we cherish. Now, of course, this doesn't have to be God. It can be success. It can be pleasure. It can be academics, you know, academics or something like that. It can be relationship or being independent or being dependent. It can be anything. In short, it can be anything can be worshipped. The question is, therefore, not if I will worship. But from the biblical frame of reference, it's always what am I worshipping? What am I giving my life over to? I don't know how many of y'all are literary buffs, but there was an author who passed away several years ago. His name was David Foster Wallace. He's not a Christian. He's a short story writer. But listen to the way that he describes what worship is. He wasn't a Christian, by the way, but listen to what he says. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they grieve you. 
that is incredibly, incredibly insightful. Because Wallace, even though he wasn't a Christian, he nails something about what it means to be human, that we all do it. And moreover, from Wallace's own words, that when you worship the wrong things, they will make you pay when you don't, when you fail them. You see, if you're not beautiful enough, you're always going to feel insecure if you're worshiping beauty. You see, if it's money that you're after all the time, if you're not making exactly what you think you ought to be making, you're going to sell yourself out. You're going to constantly live in the cage of do more. If you are worshiping the wrong things, it will always demand more and never forgive you. I want to tell you a story about my own life. I can remember my first day as a college student at the University of Tennessee. I was standing behind Reese Hall. That's the dorm that I lived in. My bags were all in the house. And I remember having this epiphany. It was this moment. I was 17 when I started college. And I'm not kidding you. I remember this thought. I thought, well, this is the place I'm going to find my wife. I remember thinking that. I didn't get married till 12 years later, okay? And Laura did not go to the University of Tennessee. I didn't meet her there. But listen, here's what I want to say. What I was after, what I most wanted, was a wife. So I gave my life to finding it. And because it wasn't God, relationships was my master. Much of my life was consumed with trying to find Mrs. Wright. And when I wasn't dating anyone, I was always trying to maneuver to meet her. But when I was dating someone, I was never able to let that person be who they were. She was always being examined to see if she was the one. I was destined, therefore, to drain her of her very life because I was forcing her to be what only God could be for me. That is, the source of my ultimate significance. So I just ask you, what is it for you? What is that thing in your life, in your heart? What, what, what gains pole position, so to speak? Two questions that I think that can help you with this. First, a little diagnostic. If you were to ask this question, what, if removed from my life, what, if removed from my life, or if I couldn't have, would make life unlivable? Or would make me a nobody? There's what you're worshiping. That's what's functionally has grasped your heart. Secondly, if you are a Christian, this is a very important question. Listen to me. I want you to answer this question. Fill in the blank. The reason I am a Christian is to get blank. What goes in the blank? What is it? Here's a little hint. If it is anything but God, there's your idol. Good job, Mr. Wright. I need that academic A. There's your idols. Here's my point. I know that you might say that God with your mouth is the thing that I want. But what is your life telling us? What is your life saying? Well, Elijah's going to tell us, look, that all of us are worshiping something. All of us are. What is it for you? That's what he wants to drive home. But there's more. Elijah reminds us that we are born worshipers, to be sure. It's part of being human. But there's more to it. Worship, as we'll see, will never be to two two or slash multiple things at once. In other words, as our second point highlights for us, that worship cannot be divided. Another way of saying it positively is that worship will always be singular 
in its object. Look at verse uh, 18 and 21 there again where we read earlier. So Elijah comes to the, Elijah comes to the people and the prophets of Baal and puts it very bluntly, pick. If Baal is God, follow him. But if Yahweh is God, then follow him. Now remember, Israel at the time was a very religiously plural society. But Elijah is saying, there can only be one God. Choose who it will be. This is because only one thing can be ultimately valuable in your heart. Just sort of stands to reason in that case. You're not able to split your loyalties. You're just not. Something will always grab first importance in your heart and life. Now, this is what I find to be so interesting about this text. Because the prophet Elijah is saying something absolutely and incredibly profound and relevant both then and now. And here's what it is. He's saying that religious pluralism can't stand. It doesn't hold up. Here's what I mean. Have you ever heard this raised, this thought raised and uh, raised up? Think about it. Um, we live in a day where religious pluralism sort of holds the day. It's the view that's, that many hold. It goes something like this. There can't just be one way to God, it is said. There certainly have to be multiple ways. You know, ha- have you ever heard this before? Perhaps, I mean, perhaps you hold that view. Maybe that's something that you are desperately and deeply committed to. And I just want to say, if you're a Christian tonight, how do you respond to such a claim? Well, I want you to see that it's at the core of what Elijah is getting at. He is saying, quit vacillating between two gods. Now, let's take a look and examine this for a second. This objection is often advanced, this objection that there can't be just one way to God. There can't just be one God. is often advanced or spoken of in the name of tolerance and inclusivity. Okay? So, um, it goes something like this. Nobody wants to be exclusive, so surely there must be several roads all leading to the same destination. Surely there can't be just one way to God. That seems so narrow and intolerant. One of the ways that it gets brought up that I've heard it expressed is this idea that um, there are several roads that lead to the same uh, location. You might hear another illustration about people holding on to parts of an elephant, or you might hear of people um, also sort of uh, climbing up a mountain, so to speak, with different paths to the top. But I want to uh, actually take a look for just a second at this illustration of the road map. You know, there are 12 people, for example, they're all coming into Fort Worth, okay? So you got some people coming from 20, some people coming in from 30, some people coming up whatever other highways are coming into Fort Worth. But the point is, is that all of them are on different paths, but they're coming to the same spot. And so, you know, every, um, every road highlights some different religion, but we all end up in the same city. Now, on the way, so the illustration goes, nobody has an objective view of everything else. You can only see what road you're on. And it is limited to their own understanding of things, but there is a problem. The illustration saws off the limb upon which it stands. And here's what I mean. Put your thinking caps on. So if you're asleep, wake up for just a second. Okay? Here's why. Here's why. When somebody says to you or claims that all roads lead to the same spot, the only way one can see and say such a thing is if they have an objective 
exclusive, all-seeing perspective that no one else has, which allows them to see that all roads come to the same location. But that is the very thing that they say no one religion can surely have. Religious pluralism looks like it's incredibly open and tolerant. But in the end, it too is exclusive. It says, I can see all of this, and this is the right vantage point, and all others are wrong. Now, that might have just confused you. I've got good news for you. You can hear the podcast in about three or four days. It'll be up, and you can come back and listen to it. Okay? But in philosophical terms, that whole argument is self-referentially incoherent. It does not stand. And I want you to know that as a Christian on the college campus. Because you need to have a way to speak about people and to speak with people winsomely, fairly, and clearly who disagree with you on this campus. I'm trying to help you and to, and to equip you along the way. Elijah was saying, don't play the religious pluralism game. It's not honest for one. And it's killing you as well. He's saying, see, learn, determine what is true, and then follow Him. I have a seminary professor, his name was Jerem Bars, and he used to say this all the time. The only reason that anybody ought to be a Christian is if one thing, is if it's true. If it's not, abandon it. Be done with it once and for all. And that is why in RUF, you will never hear me say, check your brain before you come in the door. No. Christianity must be thought through. It must be reasoned. You must use your brain. You will never hear me say, well, you just got to have faith and just got to believe. No easy believism right here. It will not be preached. It will never be heralded. I want you to think instead. Because one of these days, you're not going to know what to do and you're going to need something to stand on. That's why you must think it through. I have another friend who used to say this. He used to say, you know, Ryan, um, I, uh, I, I have to, well, I'm going to, mm, let's see here, where are we on time? Yeah, I've got to keep moving. Uh, Michael, you're going to have to go through a couple slides. I'm sorry, man. And I have a friend of mine who used to say this, I'm tired of living like Christianity is half true. And I really think that that says it perfectly. He is right, y'all. Jesus is problematic, and here's why. Jesus, you the next one. Jesus won't be half had. You take all of him or you reject all of him. That's what Elijah is getting at. Do you see it? He is urging us to actually decide who is ultimate. Who is God? To examine him, to look at him, and to consider him. Well, this takes us lastly to our third point this idea that worship as a response. Listen, um, I want you to look back at your text, and we're going to kind of go through this story real quickly to sort of understand what uh, is actually going on. Um, first, we see two religions sort of go head-to-head like a championship game, right? You've got Yahwism on one side, and then you've got Baalism on the, on the other. And these prophets sort of go head-to-head, so to speak. Now, Elijah sort of sets the pace, and he says, Hey, you boys, y'all, y'all go do your thing with Baal. Set up the thing. Set up the altar, put the sacrifice out there, and call on your God, and hopefully He'll come down and He'll consume your fire. 
I mean, it consumed with fire the, uh, the sacrifice. So do what you need to do. And they sort of start doing their thing. They start dancing around. They start cutting themselves literally to sort of make the blood flow. That would have been a symbol of like, hey, Baal, we're really serious. Come look at us, okay? And you'll notice what the text says. There's like garbage talking going on here. Trash talking from Elijah. He says, look, hey, cry aloud for he's God. He's either amusing himself or he's relieving himself. That literally is a Hebrew euphemism for he's taking a dump. Maybe that's what Baal is doing. Call on him louder. You're going to have to get him off the toilet. Or maybe he's, uh, he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and he needs to be woken up. You need to cry louder. Do more. Scream louder, Elijah says. But do you notice what happens in verse 27? After it all, look what it says. There was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. But then God answers Elijah prayer, Elijah's prayer. And you'll notice that Elijah does nothing. Rather, he simply prays. You'll find it there. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, you, O Yahweh, are God, and that you have turned back their hearts. And so God responds by accepting the sacrifice, the whole thing, drying up all the water that was in the, in the trench. And here is the point. He does so. You see it there. He does it for two reasons. To make His name great and to turn the people's hearts back to Him. This, y'all, is an unprecedented act of unmerited free grace. And when the sacrifice and everything else is consumed, do you see what the people say? They say in verse 39, the Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. They respond to His act of mercy and grace. A couple of ways to drive this home for us tonight. And I really think this is important for TCU students. Um, That's why I'm kind of ending with it. First of all, I want you to understand that worship is not done to get God to notice us. It's not. We see this, by the way, that Elijah mocks the Baal prophets. We don't worship to get God to smile on us. This means that anything that we do to try to get Him to do that, listen, is actually more akin to pagan Baal worship. Let me illustrate a way that this actually gets fleshed out. I know on TCU's campus, because I used to do this, okay? This is very popular in, the, in broad evangelicalism, and I, wanna, I do want to go after it, because I think it's important. One way we see this flushed out in our cultural moment is how we wrongly think that we must work up our emotions in corporate worship to get God to be pleased with us. This is a pagan idea. You are free to not have the warm fuzzies every time you go to church. Do you know that? Authentic worship isn't about that old 70s song being hooked on a feeling. If it is, if that is what you are after when you go into worship to try to have an experience so that God will be happy with you, you are not going to worship to worship God. You're going for yourself. You're going to worship for yourself. 
If we go to church or worship looking for some experience as the ultimate end, I want you to see that this is no different than seeking the experience over God and making the experience an idol. That's very, very important for you to understand. Yes, sometimes we do leave from worship being moved by God's grace. And that happens because we have given ourselves over to Him. Our longings, our dreams, our hopes, etc. And then He meets us by His grace. But we may not as well. And I don't want you to think for one moment that because you don't feel anything when you leave a corporate worship service that somehow you are not a Christian. That it isn't authentic or real. Read the Psalms. Go to Psalm 88. It's about as dark as it gets. And yet, it is real and true worship. That's the first thing. Secondly, the converse. Rather, worship is motivated by the fact that God has already done everything to accept us. The people do this in verse 39. Real worship, therefore, is always a response to already receiving His gaze, not about trying to secure it. You see this in turn may actually stir our hearts. But, but, week in, week out, it may not. You know, my, my point is this. Like, you read the Psalms. Read Psalm 37, Psalm 34. Yes, they talk about our affections, and that's very important. But I want you to see that what I'm trying to say is that worship isn't primarily about feeling the first darn thing. It is about giving yourself over to the Lord and in so doing, we do so because He is infinitely valuable. Your feelings, y'all, they will come and go. They will. And I don't want you to think that you are any less of a Christian because you don't always feel something at every given turn. It's called the heresy of experience, if you want to call it that. You're free. You are free. You are free. God looks at you for some other reason. He smiles on us because we, because we are in Christ, not because of anything that we do. He doesn't do so. He doesn't, he doesn't look at us because we're trying to trump up our feelings and do all the right stuff to get Him to notice it. That, that is absolutely not true. Um, I'll close with this. In Paul's letter to the Romans... We hear Paul phrasing the entirety of the Christian life like something like this. Look on your screen. I'll appeal, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The entirety of our lives is to be worship. But Paul says something absolutely staggering. Did you notice it? Sacrifices are always dead. They're always dead. Yet, Paul says we are to be living sacrifices. How? How can that be? Here's how. You see, on the cross, Jesus Himself would be the sacrifice that would be consumed. He would be a dying sacrifice. He was consumed by the fire of God's judgment. Why? So that you and I wouldn't have to be. And when you see Him as a dead sacrifice for you, your heart can't help but be moved by this loving and kind expression of grace on your behalf. 
You can't help but cherish it. Because God has already smiled on you. You see, His gaze is already yours. True worship doesn't secure God's loving gaze to us. It is always a response from already having it. Y'all, look. You are free in the Christian life from having to live like the anxious 7th grader. Always wondering if God is looking at you or not. You are free. You don't have to worry if you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, what God makes of you. He loves and enjoys and cherishes you because of the finished work of Jesus on your behalf. I don't care how you feel in this moment. That is what's true. That is what's true for you. Incredibly good news.